You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Good morning. Good to see you all. Can I get a show of hands who would be willing to acknowledge with me that the Little House on the Prairie, which ran from 1974 to 82, was the greatest television show in the history of television shows? Yes? Yes? You know, you can disagree because it's okay to be wrong. This is America. Little House on the Prairie is one of the first stories I remember uh, reading. We had the box set. I can still see little Laura Ingalls on the, the cover there. And then I was delighted when I found out that Michael Landon starred in a TV show by the same name. And I just so much came to appreciate this show. You can't not like the Ingalls family, am I right? You have Charles Ingall and, and, and Caroline, so you got Pa and Ma, and then you got the sisters, Mary, Carrie, Baby Grace, and then Laura, affectionately named Half Pint. Some of you are listening, yes, wonderful. Well, I, I just thought, what a great family. I want to be in this family. I want to sleep in the loft. I, I want to ride the horse-drawn buggy. I want to be with uh, Pa and the family when he gets out his fiddle after dinner and the, the fire's raging and he just gets to playing. I especially wanted to run down the hill in the opening credits with the girls, right? It's so much fun. And they run right into that quaint little town of Walnut Grove. Walnut Grove, what, what a great place, right? You had the one-room schoolhouse taught, that, that the beautiful single, might I add, Miss Beadle taught at. You had one doctor to remember, uh, Doc Baker. You had one reverend, Reverend Alden, and then you had, you always have to have the curveball in there. So you had the Olson family that ran the general store. Nels is great, right? Nels is great. Harriet was horrible. Nellie was a know-it-all. Willie was a menace. Just terrible. But Nels was a good man. And then you had great neighbors. You had Mr. Edwards, Mr. Garvey, right? They were always there for you through good times and bad I just, I wanted to live in Walnut Grove, the kind of place that you feel safe and secure. That's just the feeling you got when you watched that show, right? Caroline was a strong woman, right? You had to be to make it on the prairie. But Pa, Charles, he was the rock in the show, right? That's what drew me to this. He was amazing. Every turn, he took care of business. No matter what came their way, the barn burns down, no time for weeping. He gets his hat on, his work hat, gets out to rebuilding right away, right? Winter comes through and ruins the crops. What's the family going to do? He's going to get a job 200 miles away, be gone for six months, provide for them in the meantime, get home just in the nick of time to a wonderful meal and that Charles Ingalls smile that he flashes. Everything is fine, friends. No matter what trials they experience on the prairie, you could always count on Pa to hold it all together. Do you know anyone like that? You know, you just feel safe in their presence. No matter what's going on, it could be the worst stuff ever. And they say to you, everything's going to be fine. And you believe them. When it came to life on the prairie, you would want someone like Charles Ingalls in your corner. right? When it came to life on the sea, you would want someone like Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John in your boat experienced young fishermen. These guys have been on the Sea of Galilee their whole lives. They'd weathered many storms and come home safely. You might not know the first thing about boating, 
I don't. Armand knows a lot more. But if they're in your boat, you just have this sense everything is going to be fine. But here's the question. What happens when those people, your go-to people, the people that can always take care of business, what happens when they can't? When a particular situation is too much for them, then what? Like, like when uh, Mary went blind on Little House. Paul was a mess. When their adopted son, Albert, uh, got leukemia, you could just see the fear in his eyes. When those you count on, those who know how to take care of things are impotent to help, then who do you look to for help? That's the dilemma the disciples are experiencing on the Sea of Galilee. When the sea erupted and the wind and the waves are overwhelming them, the disciples, including these experienced fishermen, they're worthless to do anything. So that's the scene. They're fending for their lives in the midst of a, a, a huge storm. And where is Jesus? He's asleep. He's down below. And we'll get back to the action in just a few minutes. But first, let me give you the outline. It's in your bulletin. Hope it doesn't take up too much space in there. Pay attention. It's really detailed. Uh, Setting, crisis, Jesus, questions. That's it. That's it. So first, the setting. The setting is the Sea of Galilee. One day at evening, verse 35 says, he said to his disciples, let's go across to the other side. And he's talking about crossing the Sea of Galilee. They're, they're, in the, they're on the Jewish side of Galilee. They, he wants to go to a Gentile territory. We find out in Mark 5 that their destination is the country of the Gerasenes. And we'll see that in a couple weeks. And what concerns us this morning is not yet where they're going, but what happens to them along the way. And they set sail. Uh, several seafarers are on deck, right? The disciples, Jesus is a carpenter by trade. So he's like, I'm not needed up here. I'm not gonna be any help. He takes the opportunity to go down below and get some rest. And while he sleeps, chapter four, verse 37 says, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, it's not uncommon for there to be storms that just kind of spring up quickly on the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have been there. Maybe you've seen this. Uh, the cool air, uh, or the sea itself is 700 feet below sea level, Sea of Galilee. Cool air rushes down the ravines and the hills, and it meets the warm air that sits above the sea. And then there's just a, a storm that brews immediately. It's like snaps up really, really quick. It's not uncommon to have storms on the sea, even sudden violent storms. What would have been uncommon, as we're reading the story, is for that these experienced fishermen to be so afraid of this storm. That shows us the magnitude of this particular storm, the crisis they found themselves in. And I imagine that when this kicked up, this storm, they did everything they could to, to respond to it. They, they would have, uh, again, I'm no uh, sailor, but I, they would have Aramon, help me out, battened down the hatches, uh, secured the boom, made, pulled in the mainsail, right? Other stuff. Just whatever nautical terms you have, just throw them out here. Aft, fore, bow, I don't know, flying jib. My point is they had exhausted their resources and it wasn't enough. And so they went to their exhausted leader, Jesus, for help. As I was thinking about the scene here, I was, I was thinking about, I go out to uh, El Dorado and sit at the duck pond sometimes and just read or just watch the, the wildlife there. And, you know, they, 
They have these ducks. They, they have these ducks nowadays. <laughs> There's ducks out there that you, you've seen a duck swimming really fast across a lake and you're like, wow, because up top they're just like, <laughs> but they're just booking it. So underneath, they're, they're, what are they, feet? <laughs> Webbed flippers. They're just kicking and they're just, they're flying, right? And I thought about that. If you were to flip that duck upside down, that's our scene. Jesus is down below the water, calm, asleep. And up top, things are just kicking up like crazy. It's fantastic. It's, it's going nuts up there. Here's how uh, Rembrandt, uh, I don't know if the, the DPIs on this are very good. Yeah, not, not great. Is that, is that okay? Can you see that? Okay. Uh, Google this when you get home. Just look it up. It's uh, Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you'll, you'll be able to, with a better image, you'll be able to see a lot of detail there. It's a really large piece. It's five feet by, five feet by four feet. And up until 1990, it hung in a, a, a museum in Boston, and then it was stolen. And they still don't know where it is. Yeah. So if you have it... Um, <laughs> The disciples, they, they fear losing their lives, and so they wake Jesus. He's asleep in the stern, and all these details, he's asleep in the stern with his head on a cushion. It's just, it, I think Mark adds that, like, he has no issue here at all. Everything's going crazy up top. He's got his head on a pillow, just catching up on his rest. They shake him. They, they wake him, and they say, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing they don't yet understand how yet understand how much more than a teacher he is, but they're going to get a, a, an image in a minute. For now, they're offended, they're upset, they rebuke him, asking, "How can you sleep when we're about to die?" That's what they're saying. Now we might wonder why is Jesus sleeping? Right? I think there's two reasons. Uh, one, he's a human person; he works hard. His body needs rest, and so he sleeps. The other one is that Jesus trusts God. He trusts in God who never sleeps or slumbers, and so he can. When the wind and the waves and everything else in the world is going crazy, he believes in the sovereignty, the good care of God, and so he can rest easy. Jesus has made Psalm 4.8 his prayer. He's incorporated it into his actual experience. And it says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And that holds him in the midst of this storm. But his disciples, they're not so sure. They certainly couldn't sleep at a time like this with everything being so wet and windy. They fear losing their lives and so they rouse him from his sleep. They wake Jesus. Maybe you've uh, experienced something like this. You've feared for your life in, in a, in a, uh, on the sea, or like Travis uh, shared earlier, or some natural disaster. You really thought, like, not just this is dangerous, but I could die here. I'm sure some in this room have experienced that. And if you have, you, you get a sense for what gripped the, the hearts of the disciples here, the fear that they had. But more than frightening weather, there appears to be something else going on here, something more uh, than meets the eye with this particular storm. And when we see how Jesus addresses the situation, how he does what needs to be done, how he takes care of business, we get some insight into what's happening. 
So Jesus, he gets up from his nap. Verse 33, or 39 says, he awoke and he rebuked the storm, right? He spoke directly to the sea, peace be still. It's kind of interesting here because Jesus speaks to the sea like you would speak to a person, right? And let me ask you, who is normally on the receiving end of a rebuke? It's, it's a person, it's people, it's someone, right? We see this throughout the gospels. Jesus rebukes Satan at his temptation, Later on, when Jesus is talking about uh, going to the cross, Peter says to him, no, Lord, you're not gonna die. He rebuked him. Jesus rebukes him back when he says, get behind me, Satan. People get rebuked. That's normally the way it happens, right? If I told you I'm gonna rebuke someone today, first of all, that'd be strange for me to say, to announce that. But you would probably wonder, oh, I wonder who he's talking about, not I wonder if he's going to walk down the pier and rebuke the Pacific Ocean or maybe go over to El Dorado because that rascally pond over there needs a rebuke. That would be crazy, right? You, you, you wouldn't think that. You would wonder who. By the way, I, I, I don't want you to think I go around rebuking people. It's just an illustration. So, Here in our scene, Jesus rebukes the storm. He says, peace, be still. He talks to the wind and waves like he's talking to someone not some impersonal force of nature like Mother Nature, but someone. So what's going on here? Uh, you know, it's, it's good to, to, to read uh, the scriptures, to get a couple verses with the devotional. It's, it's even better to get, sit down and have, read a few chapters. What's really good is to read blocks of scripture at a time so you can kind of see what's happening uh, in, in a scene. Like if you read Genesis 1 to 11, uh, or, uh, you know, the, the whole Sermon on the Mount, or let's say Mark 1 to 4. If you were to read Mark 1 to 4 all the way through, it'd take you about 20 minutes, and, and you would start to get a sense for how things fit together. You would maybe hear some, some parallels, some things to help explain other things. You, you would, by the time you got to Mark 4, you would hear an echo of Mark 1. And in Mark 1, you would read uh, verses 21 to 28 about a time when Jesus healed a man with an unclean spirit. And there, uh, Mark writes, Jesus rebuked the demon saying, be silent and come out. All were amazed and they said, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And then you'd get to Mark 4, our passage, and you'd hear something, again, that sounds familiar. Mark 4.39, we read, Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. The disciples, verse 41, are stunned and asked, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Right, so in Mark 1, Jesus rebukes a demon, tells it to be silent, it obeys him. In Mark 4, Jesus rebukes a storm, tells it to be still, it obeys him. This leads many to conclude that this particular storm on the sea was no ordinary storm but was being whipped up by Satan himself or some demonic stand-in. There's an opponent present in this storm on the Sea of Galilee, not, not metaphorically, but actually. This, this storm is not just the result of, of living in a sin-infected world where natural disasters happen and people's lives are threatened. No, this storm, it seems, has a diabolical intent behind it. It's personal. Someone stands behind this evil, this moral evil, and Jesus rebukes him. Does that make sense? We live in a world where bad things happen, don't we? We do earthquakes, tornadoes, 
hurricanes, mudslides. There are accidents every day in which people die. And maybe you've been in a situation where you might be tempted to think, you know what, this is just what it means to live in, a, in the world. Bad things happen in the world. But maybe you've, you've experienced times where that just didn't seem sufficient. And, and you thought, there seems to be someone behind this, something evil, some intent behind this horrible thing that happened. Maybe you can't explain it to anyone's satisfaction, but that's how you felt in that moment during that experience. Again, it wasn't sufficient to say, well, you know, bad things happen. No, something more seemed to be going on. When I was 19, I worked for a lady in our church that ran a preschool called Adventure World. And uh, it was an adventure, if you're wondering. I, I worked there with several friends, including the owner's daughter. And we had so much fun. We were out of compliance constantly. Yeah, but this is the Missouri in the late 90s, so no one cared. No one cared. Anyways, there's a bunch of really sweet kids uh, that are part of the preschool. I still remember them all. Uh, there was Jared and Nicholas, and these were a couple of four-year-olds that had the most philosophical conversations you could imagine on twin toilets in the boys' bathroom. <laughs> and then there was Jennifer Gray, who reminded us all of, of Lucy from Peanuts. She, kinda, she had that way about her, that, that telling everyone what to do. She even had the little, little brown hairdo. And then Chris Gray, this little guy, he could rap all of LL Cool J's I'm Bad at three years old. He didn't know all the words, but he did his best, and you could tell what he was doing. And, and then there was Cassie. And, and Cassie, uh, you know, I know you're not supposed to have favorites, right? Can we all just be real and give up the illusion that that's a thing? We all have our favorites. <laughs> Cassie was everyone's favorite, hands down. No one even argued. She just was. She was so sweet. She was so funny. She was sassy. She was doing this thing before that was a thing. If she pouted, she could get whatever she wanted. She had us all wrapped around her finger. She was at home with her parents one day and was complaining about some stiffness in her neck. And they could see she was struggling, and so they rushed her to the, the car, and before they got out of the house, she was dead. She had meningitis. And so uh, we got the call, and we all went to the funeral, and... I don't know if you've ever been to a, a child's funeral, but there's not much worse than that. And you see that little casket, it's just, it's horrible. Her parents were in such mourning. They, they, they wailed the entire service and, and no one even thought about stopping them, right? I'm sitting there, we're all sitting there holding hands and we're just weeping uncontrollably. And I remember in that moment being incredibly angry. And I wasn't angry at God, I was angry at death. I don't know if you've ever cursed death. I was angry at the one behind death, the one who did this, the one who brought Cassie's life to an end. There was no celebration of life, right? She'd only lived four years. Someone was to blame for this. That was very evident to me in that moment and still is as I reflect back on it some 30 years later. I thought of Cassie when I was putting this message together and that Jesus, he knew it's not just that bad things happen on the sea, but someone bad is behind this. Someone's responsible for this. And it makes sense that it would be Satan, because after all, wouldn't Satan want to stop Jesus and the disciples on their way to the other side of the sea, 
Do you know why he'd want to do that? Because where they're heading was Gentile territory. The country of the Gerasenes, a land where demons roam freely and pigs are aplenty. The trip represents the expansion of the gospel to every nation, even bacon-eating nations. And, and Mark here, I think, is giving us a preview of the worldwide mission which would happen in the book of Acts. Jesus didn't come only for the Jews, but for the whole world, and they're sailing to the other side of the sea, representing that, and Satan opposes this work, and he tries to stop them, he tries to thwart God's plans, and though he fails, he is not to be underestimated, friends. Satan is certainly powerful, as the great hymn says, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. This storm certainly would have ended the disciples' lives if it weren't for the sleeping one who woke up. Amen? It's wild on deck. The disciples are screaming at each other over the, the wind and the rain. Water hitting them in the faces, drenching them. Jesus comes up on deck. And I, when you read the Bible, I... I, I try to engage my imagination, and I, when I get up from a nap, I kind of do this thing. I don't know if Jesus did any of that, if he kind of like, you know. <laughs> Peace be still. That's all he says. And there's no struggle, right? The, the wait, raging sea just becomes calm all at once. This great storm, Mark writes, in a moment became a great calm. It's a showdown on the sea and the winner is Jesus. And then after everything's so calm, what are we left with? After all that drama, questions, right? Whenever we engage Jesus in the, in the scriptures, we should, it should provoke questions in our hearts. Jesus has a question, verse 40. It's a rebuke in the form of a question, but it, he asks them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? That's what he says to the disciples. This is the first in a series of, of rebukes that Jesus makes to his disciples in Mark's gospel. In Mark 7, he says, do you also fail to understand? You're gonna see him like shaking his head. Mark 8, why are you talking about having no bread? This is after he had fed thousands of people with what probably amounted to a, a, a one meal for a big family. Do you still not perceive? And then Mark 9, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? And I think this is uh, surprising, all these rebukes strung together here, because of what comes earlier in Mark 4. We were just reading in Mark 4 where Jesus says, to you has been given the secret to the kingdom, disciples, Right? And don't forget how he taught the crowds in parables and they didn't understand, but to Jesus' own, he explained everything to them in private, Mark 4, 34, one verse before we get to this. So right after he mentions his privileged insight and instruction for his own, he rebukes them for their fear and lack of faith. And then he goes on to rebuke them more times in chapter seven, chapter eight, and chapter nine. And we might think, what does that mean? I thought they were doing well. I thought they were nailing it. I think what it highlights is that the disciples are still quite blind. They still have a lot of misunderstanding to overcome. They have holes in their theology. They don't have it all worked out. 
And that's reinforced by their own question to one another in verse 41. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Is it easy for you to get frustrated with the disciples when they're so dull? Right? I mean, you read this and you're like, what do you mean who is this? You've been with him, guys. What are you talking about? Hadn't you heard his incredible teaching? Didn't you see his miraculous uh, deliverance for people from demons? Didn't you see that? You saw the miracle of the food? Didn't you leave everything to follow him? Wouldn't this question, who is he, been better back there? You've left everything already to follow him. They still have so much room to grow. That's the point. So much to learn as they follow Jesus. And I think for us today, this is both encouraging and discouraging. It's encouraging because we're all in the same boat, right? And if Jesus stuck with them, he'll stick with us through it too. And it's discouraging because we're all in the same boat. And they are right now in the dole boat and there's room and we're taking up the extra seats. They're with Jesus. They've left all to follow him, but they're still working out who he is. But what they're picking up along the way and what we learn as we read through Mark's gospel is that no enemy can stand in his way. No demon, no disease, not the wind and the waves. There's no match for Jesus. And the longer they're with him, the more opportunities they have to witness his greatness, to be in awe of what they're seeing, to ask these questions. But friends, it's not enough to be in awe of Jesus or to think highly of him if that's where it ends. There must be more. Jesus calls for faith in him. He calls us to trust him. He calls us to put our lives in his hands. That's what Jesus is after. That's what Mark's gospel commends to his readers. The disciples ask, who is this? Who is this who casts out demons? Who is this who heals the sick? Who is this that even the sea and the wind obey him? Who is this? Do you know, church, this morning, do you know who this is? He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is Master, Savior, Lord, King, Messiah. He's the one who's come from heaven to be born a man. He's God in human flesh. And what is his name? Jesus. What's his name? Jesus. Man, in my mind, I've been listening to some black preaching lately, and I just hear this uh, someone on the Hammond organ, and I say, what's his name? And I'm just, Jesus, Je-, you know, and just like, like we get to stomping, and that's the next 35 minutes, and then we have a picnic, and then we go home. It's a good Sunday. Jesus, Jesus, what a beautiful name. On the prairie, Charles Ingalls is your guy in most situations, right? On the sea, the disciples will serve you well most of the time, but when all hell breaks loose and you're about to die, no one but Jesus will do. Mark continues to tell the story of Jesus chapter after chapter, and every enemy we see is no match for him. He has no rival. He has no equal. He is victorious, hallelujah. Jesus asked his question, the disciples asked theirs, and I think there's one more question for us this morning. 
It's what's your question for Jesus? And maybe it's, uh, maybe it's who are you? Maybe that's your question for Jesus. Who are you? You really wanna know for yourself? You've heard a lot of stuff. You hope the distorted Jesus can somehow be untangled from the real Jesus and you wanna encounter him. So maybe that's your question this morning. Who are you? Uh, maybe your question is, don't you care that we're suffering? Like they said, don't you care that we're perishing? You know, we live in this world where so much tragedy happens regularly at home and abroad and, and it's easy to wonder, is heaven silent when it comes to all this? Don't you care that we're suffering? Maybe your question is a little more personal. It's, do you see me? You know, maybe you're, you're lonely and you really wonder if, if anyone even notices you. Maybe that's your question for Jesus this morning. Maybe it's, why am I struggling so much? I've prayed all the prayers. I've done everything I know that's right to do what, what, I need to be, what needs to be done. And I still can't stop this thing or I still wrestle with this thing. Doesn't appear to be changing. I don't know what your question is, your particular question, but I do know that Jesus wants to hear it and he can handle it. He wants us to bring him those things that concern us. So do not fear. Do not fear. Let's take a few moments to bring our questions, whatever your question is, to, to Jesus now. Let's do that in silence. Lord Jesus, because of who you are, all enemies must bow at your command. Demons, disease, even death, they don't get the final word, you do. And because of that, there's hope. There's hope for the disciples in Mark 4. There's hope for us today. There's hope for Cassie. Hope for all. And when we're facing storm after storm, let us hear your word again over the wind and the waves. Peace, be still, amen.